Good morning. It's good to see you. If you're a guest with us, I'm especially glad you're here today. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. And it is uh, hard to believe watching that video that Lent starts in two weeks because it seems like Advent just ended. Uh, if you're not familiar with any of that, Advent is the, the four weeks before Christmas that we celebrated in December. That's when we started talking about this idea here behind me that Jesus changes everything. And then Lent is the 40 days before Easter where the church uh, sets aside time to kind of prepare and reflect. We typically either give something up or pick something up during Lent to kind of just get our hearts ready to celebrate the resurrection of Christ at Easter. So if you've never participated in Lent before, I hope you'll give it a shot with us this year. Uh, It's a, a very meaningful thing for us individually and for us collectively as a church to do together. But today is uh, our final Sunday in this message series called Jesus Changes Everything. Again, during Advent in December, we started talking about how the arrival of Christ in our world uh, changes everything for us individually. Jesus shows up and he's our Savior, he's our King, he's our Lord, he's the one who brings us hope and comfort and peace. And then in January, we shifted gears a little bit and have been talking about how if, if that's true, that Jesus changes everything for me personally, then what responsibility do I have to share that message with everyone everywhere? And so we've been exploring all month long about how when Jesus changes me, it means I should care about others, and especially those who um, are hurting and are oppressed or those who have never heard about Jesus. So we've heard from different missionaries all month long. We've highlighted Royal Family Kids Camp, Crisis Pregnancy Outreach, some significant things we do here in our community to help people know that Jesus cares for them as well. Uh, But today we're going to kind of wrap it all up by talking about um, our faith promise giving, which if if you've been around a long time, you know what that is. If not, I'm going to explain more of it at the end. But basically it's the, the way that we support missions here at Christian Chapel. But we'll get to all that here in a little bit. We're going to start by looking at two passages of Scripture, Luke chapter 15 and 2 Samuel 3. So in Luke 15, we're going to look and see what um, Jesus teaches us about God's heart for those who are far from him. And then in 2 Samuel 23, there's a story from King David's life that we'll look at and see what it teaches us about responding uh, to the the vision of our king. So uh, when I was in high school, I had a job working in a hospital cafeteria. I, uh, they made me wear these polyester pants, a polyester vest, a black pants, black vest, a white button-up shirt, and a bow tie. Uh, because apparently if you dress like that, it helps people heal faster. Um, and so my job was to go around to all the rooms and serve them meals. And so I would do that, and, and you know, it was fine. It was a way for me to uh, buy my first car. It was a way for me to save a little bit for college. I started when I was 16. I worked it uh, all the way through high school until I, until I left town to go to college. But uh, during that time, um, my parents, like most parents do, there were different times they'd get on me about different stuff, things like that. And because I worked at a hospital, one of my go-to responses was, don't tell me what to do. I work at a hospital. I'm almost a doctor. <laughs> and uh, they had, yeah, basically the same response you did. Uh, you're an idiot. Shut up. You're grounded. Yeah, that was how that conversation would normally go. Um, but I, I just, I would ride that constantly and I would never give an inch to them on the fact that I was almost, like if one of them were, were sick, I'd be like, hey, let me look at it. I'm almost a doctor. Um, but on the other side, I, I was taking science and math classes that were affirming to me I was indeed not a doctor, nor should I ever be a doctor because lots of people would die. Um, but it, it didn't stop me. And so since then, like now I, I'm willing to acknowledge I, my primary medical advice to my kids is toughen up. 
Uh, like, you're sick? Toughen up. You're fine. Um, but Angie, thankfully, is a nurse, so she's able to diagnose when things are, are really wrong or not. So my medical knowledge is pretty limited now, but that doesn't stop me from enjoying uh, medical articles about studies that have been done, especially when they reinforce my current lifestyle. And I'm sure you're the same way. Like all of us, our favorite medical studies are the ones that say what we're currently doing is good for us, right? Like don't come at me with that stuff that says kale's good for you. No, don't do that at all. Like I read one the other day that said people who don't eat bacon still die. (laughs) That's brilliant. I mean, I I don't think it was from Johns Hopkins. I think it might have just been like an internet meme, but... It was online, so it must be true, right? And so you you just kind of embrace that. The other time I enjoy um, some of these medical articles is when they help me with uh, message prep for Sundays like they did this week. So today we're going to talk about how uh, when we have God's heart, it changes our vision for the world. And that one of the reasons Jesus comes is to change us from the inside out. And when that happens, it should change the way we see ourselves, the way we see God, the way we see the world around us. And this is true spiritually, spiritually, but it's also true physically for us. There have been uh, lots of studies that show that vision issues or vision loss can be an early warning sign of various forms of heart disease, right? That, that when, you're, when you start to have problems with your eyes, sometimes it can be a sign that you need to get something checked with your heart. And, and then there are even more studies that show an undeniable link to when you have significant heart disease, it can lead to significant vision issues. And so these aren't across the board, but you guys know how that works better than I do, obviously. But it, it points us towards this idea that physically there's a connection between the health of our heart and the health of our eyes. And what I want us to consider this morning is that spiritually the same thing is true. The way we see the world tells us a lot about the condition of our heart. And Jesus is very clear to us in the Gospels that he comes to change our hearts. Right? He's repeatedly getting after the religious people of his day because outwardly they are doing the right things. But inwardly, he says, they're basically rotten. It's, it's coming from a polluted spring. And so the gospel transforms us from the inside out. God wants to make us the right person. And then out of that, we will be the right person. We will do the right things. We will say the right things. And so what we're going to consider, uh, especially along those lines this morning, is that as Jesus comes and changes us, one of the things he does for us is he gives us the Father's heart towards the world. That God, our Father, loves all of us. He loves everyone, everywhere. And when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we should have a similar vision for the world, for, especially for people who are far from Jesus. One of the ways Jesus teaches us this idea is in Luke chapter 15. So we're just going to kind of summarize these, these real quick. But basically in Luke 15, Jesus tells us three stories. And in each story, it has the same point. God's heart is soft, is, is longing for those who are far from him to return to him. So it starts off in Luke 15. Jesus tells a parable of a lost sheep. He says a shepherd had a hundred sheep. He's counting them all up. He realizes one is missing. And so he leaves the 99 behind and he goes out to seek the one who is lost. And when he finds it, he rejoices. He has a party. He's, he's really excited about it. And I think Jesus tells us this story to teach us that God longs for us as his followers to never be content with 99% participation, right? Most of us, even as Christians, if, if overnight 99% of the world were to become Christian, were to become followers of Christ, we would rejoice in that. It would be incredible. It would lead to all sorts of changes. And yet what Jesus is teaching us is that that would be great. It would be awesome, but God would still not be content because he wants all of his children 
to come to know him, all of his children to return. And I think also in this, this parable, he's teaching us that sometimes as followers of Christ, we have to be willing to leave the safe spaces to go into the dangerous places to look for those who are lost. The next story he tells us after that is about a lady who has 10 coins and she loses one. And then she turns her house upside down, basically. It says she lights a lamp, she's sweeping. She's, she is not going to rest until she finds that lost coin. And then when she finds it again, it says there's great rejoicing. She invites her neighbors to celebrate with her. And I think Jesus is telling us this one to teach us that when we realize people are far from Jesus, there should be a sense of urgency in our heart. You know, it's, this lady doesn't kind of take the approach of like, oh, well, it'll show up when it shows up. But she, she sets aside everything. She stops all that she's doing until she finds this one lost coin. And then the last story Jesus tells us is a story that, that many of us are familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. And it's the story of uh, a man who has two sons. The younger of the two comes to him and says, Dad, I would like my inheritance now, which in that time was basically the equivalent of him coming to his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Uh, And so his dad uh, gives in and does it and says, okay, here you go. And it says the son then leaves the house. He goes out and completely squanders the wealth. He spends it on parties and women and all other sorts of things, and, and he, he just wastes every last penny to the point that he's uh, forced to take a job just kind of feeding pigs, and he's eating the same slop the pigs are eating. And, and while he's there in his lowest moment of life, he has this epiphany of, hey, my dad's servants get a clean meal, get a clean meal, clean clothes, have a roof over their head. I'm going to go back to him. And I know he'll never take me back as a son because what I did was so offensive and I've been so foolish, but maybe he'll let me be his servant. And so he goes back home and what the story tells us is that the father sees the son while he's still a long way off and he runs out to him and he embraces him and the son tries to go into this spiel of just let me be a servant, I don't deserve to be your son and the father won't have any of it. And he throws this massive party to welcome his son home. And he, he's telling, teaching his older son, teaching the neighbors, we have to rejoice because what was lost now is found. Your brother that was as good as dead is alive. We're welcoming him home. And I think Jesus tells us this story to show us God's heart towards those who've known him and then rejected him. That they've walked away from him and he, in his sovereignty and in his grace, he's allowed them to do that. And he, he doesn't always run after him and pull him out of the mess, but he stands and remains with an open heart, with open doors, with open arms. And the moment they turn, he is running towards them, just like the father in that story, ready to welcome them, ready to forgive, ready to restore, ready to renew all things. And it's teaching us, I think, some, some interesting lessons about our relationships with people that are far from Jesus. If sometimes people walk away And sometimes we're we're like the shepherd who's chasing after them. Sometimes we're the lady who stops everything. And and sometimes we're we're more like the father in that prodigal son story of just saying, God, preserve them as they go. And we'll be here to welcome them and, and party and celebrate with them when they return. But we're trusting them in God's sovereignty in that season. But all three of these stories are all teaching us the same thing. You know, we read them and a lot of times we think the main characters in these stories are the sheep, the coin, and the son. But really, the the main character in each story is the one who is doing the seeking. It's on the shepherd, it's the lady, and it's the father. And in each one of these, the, the thing that's trying to be communicated to us is this idea that God is actively seeking those that are far from him. 
They're not just out there on their own somewhere, but he is seeking after them every single day and will not rest as long as any of his sons and daughters are far from him. Earl Kreps was a a professor at the seminary I went to in Springfield, and he wrote a book called Off-Road Disciplines. And it, it was a great book that just kind of looked at different aspects of the church and how certain things we do or say affect the way we live out God's mission in the world. And he had some, a, a really interesting chapter that talks about how we view and talk about people who are far from God um, has a significant effect on our willingness to engage with them in relationships. And so he says, you know, typically in churches, they, they can sometimes view people who don't know Jesus as just souls without ears. This idea of like, well, all we got to do is tell them about Jesus and who cares about their life. That's all they need to know. Sometimes we view them as like barbarians to be civilized of, well, we'll know they're like Jesus when we make them like us, when they adopt our culture, our speech, our ways, our mannerisms, when they don't do the things we don't do and they do the things we do. So then other times we just view them as invisible people. We just don't care. Just don't think about them. They're outside of our view. They're outside of our thought. They're outside of our life. But he, he makes a point in that chapter that the way we talk about them, and especially the terminology we use, is really important because it frames the way we then engage in God's mission in the world. And so one of the most common terms that we use in the church for people who are far from Jesus is this idea of we call them the lost. You know, they're, they're lost. And, and that's a biblical term. It, it comes from Jesus himself saying he came to seek and save that which was lost. You know, it's, it's something we see spelled out in the New Testament. But I I think sometimes it can lead us to some problems because when we think of them as the lost, we think of ourselves as the ones who have to go and find them and bring them back to Jesus. What Kreps suggests in his book that I think is brilliant and has really changed my whole approach to witnessing and evangelism and missions is, he says, Luke 15, what it really teaches us is that people who are far from Jesus are the sought. They're the ones of great value that he does everything to bring back to himself. And even in the coming of Jesus, we see this. What does God do when humanity has rejected him? He sends his own son to be the way that we can be restored into a relationship with God. And when we start to think of it in this terms, I hope it brings the same freedom to you that it's brought to me because that idea of the sought is liberating. You know, I remember being a, a teenager, and I think it was at a youth camp. And this guy that was speaking, he was just, I mean, he was just giving it to us one night. Just, you know, if you've ever been in one of those hellfire, brimstone kind of services, that's what this was. He was sweating. He was yelling. He was red-faced. We were scared, um, you know, and couldn't wait to go back the next night. I don't know what it is about that camp experience, but... But there was one night, and and he was talking to us and trying to encourage us. I appreciate what he was doing. He was trying to encourage us that when you go back to school next year, you have an opportunity to influence your friends for Christ. But the way he did it, he said, when you go back to school next year, if you don't tell your friends about Jesus and they die in a wreck and go to hell, their blood is on your hands. And I sat there and thought, man, my friends are in trouble Because I am chicken, and I am scared, and I don't know what to say, and my primary concerns in life are passing algebra and popping zits. And I mean, just like, there wasn't, I had a lot of whiteheads. That was a constant concern. I know, right? It's gross. On the mirror. But um, stop. (laughs) Angie's like, stop, no. Um, But it it was, I remember sitting there, and it, and it, 
it felt like this weight being placed on me of the whole world, your whole world, knowing Jesus depends solely and exclusively on you. And my only thought was, we're all in trouble. Because I knew I couldn't do it. I could look at my friends sitting on either side of me, and I knew they couldn't do it. And it's just like, what, what are we going to do? But when we shift that idea and we start thinking about people as the sought, it's liberating because it's no longer about us. I mean, and, and this is something I had to learn over and over and over again. I remember being in college and seminary and taking apologetics classes and having professors tell us, hey, this is the way to win people to Jesus. Here's a question. Go out and ask somebody this question, and then when they disagree with you, start an argument with them, and by the end of the argument, you will win, and they'll want to be like you. And I thought, that's not going to work for me. The only time I'm quick-witted is with sarcasm and mildly inappropriate jokes. So I don't think that... Really, people are going to come to see Jesus. I'm just going to be a jerk and people are going to be mad. And, and again, this idea of if they're the lost, then it's all about we have to do it. We have to do it. We have to get out there. We have to drag people to Jesus. But if we think in terms of the sought, suddenly the weight comes off. Because what that means is it means you're never going to go anywhere and you're never going to talk to anyone that God has not been pursuing since the day they were born. You know, when I talk with our missionaries, a lot of times we can look at them as like, oh, these great heroes of the faith, they're just, they're willing to go to the ends of the earth, they're going to plow that hard field until someday one person comes to know Jesus. But when you talk to our missionaries, most of them, their motivation for going is exactly what we're talking about this morning. They believe in God's sovereign activity in all the earth. They believe that everywhere they go, the Spirit is at work. And that every time they enter in a conversation, they are joining with what God has been doing since the creation of the world. And in those environments, sharing faith and witnessing and evangelism and missions, all of those are reduced to just, hey, I'm just participating in God's kingdom. I'm just part of his plan. My job isn't to argue someone into something. It's not to convince them of something. It's not to save them myself. My job is just to say, here's what God's done in me. Here's some of the things I think he's doing in you. Here are the things I see of how he's preserving your life. Here's the way he can come and and change your marriage. He can change you as a parent. He can change your future. He can heal you. He can bring hope and deliverance and all these things. And suddenly, the idea of sharing the message of Jesus is life-giving and healthy instead of just this terrifying, oppressive burden that's placed on us. And it really makes all the difference in the world. The sought. Who are the sought? The sought are me and you and your family and your friends and your coworkers and everyone you know. And so that means every day when we wake up, our prayer is not, God, who do I have to defeat so that they'll know you today? But our prayer is, God, where are you working And how do you want me to participate in that? Who in my life is hurting that I can bring hope to? Who in my life are you speaking to in their heart about things no one knows about that you want me to come alongside of them with? Who do you want me to just pay a little extra attention to, to just spend a little extra time with? And I really believe as we listen to the Spirit in those prayers, he'll lead us to the right people, he'll lead us to the right places, and the sought will find Jesus. They'll see him as the one who's pursuing them. There's a missionary who works among unreached people groups. His name is Eli Gatro. He wrote in the, the Live Dead Journal uh, a couple years ago that we worked through as a church. I did it on a Wednesday night here as a class. He said, Today as you pray, rather than pouring your heart out to God, ask him to pour his heart to you. 
Our king is a wonderful and loving father who suffers deeply at the loss of his children. If we love him, we will listen. Eventually, we will feel his broken heart. If we love him, we will, like the mighty men of old, make his longing our mission, no matter what the risk. What is the cry of God's heart? He is weeping over his lost children, watching, waiting, and yearning for them to come home. And in this, in this quote, he picks up the, the kind of dual imagery of Luke 15 that we talked about, you know, that idea of God watching, waiting, yearning for his children to come home. But that line there, if we love him, we will, like the mighty men of old, make his longing our mission, no matter what the risk. It refers back to 2 Samuel 23. And 2 Samuel is the story of King David's life. And as you get to 23, you're kind of concluding David's life. And so his heroic conquest, he's on the throne, he's, he's settling in. And it kind of begins to tell us the story of how David organized his government, how he organized his military, different things like this. Well, in chapter 23, there, there's a few really interesting stories that talk about these 30 mighty warriors and these three men who were kind of the, the chiefs of the 30 that served David. And it tells us of their exploits and just the, the miraculous ways God used them to uh, deliver David from his enemies and to defeat those who were attacking them. And it, it's just really like it's a, it's a manly chapter. It's a, it's a good one to read. But in there, it talks about the three and the 30. And there's this one really interesting story that I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard before. I know I've read it a, a hundred times, but it, it really kind of resonated in a new way this week. Beginning in uh, 2 Samuel 23, verse 13, it says, During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gates of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Now, I've, I've read this, I've read it a bunch, and, and always kind of there were very confusing things that happened there. Like, first of all, David couldn't find water anywhere else. Like there wasn't a stream. They had to go break through the lines. Second of all, these guys risk their lives. They bring it back, and David pours it on the ground. Seems a little insulting, right? Of like, hey, maybe take a sip. We almost died. Uh, but he pours it out. And so, but what you see when you start to study that is, is these three men, you know, David had become king, but he'd become king over what was kind of a divided country at the time. He follows King Saul. There are still um, elements of Saul's family, Saul's regime, that do not want to give up the throne. And so David is anointed king, but the whole country hasn't quite fallen in line and, and in love with him yet. And so every person out there that is opposed to him is a threat to him at some level. And so one of the ways he dealt with this was by he, he had this inner circle around him, these 30 mighty warriors and these three that were kind of the chief of the 30 and then this larger group of probably several hundred that were basically his private bodyguard, like his personal army. They were his secret service. These were the men who'd been with him in the desert while Saul was pursuing him and trying to hunt him down. And, and David always kept them close because they were loyal to him first. 
Before they were loyal to the nation of Israel, before they were looking for anything else, they were loyal to David. Because David had called them out when they were just foreigners and misfits and outlaws, and he had turned them into something. He gave their life meaning. He had given them a purpose, and now he was their king, and they were going to serve him no matter what. And so when David says, I'm, I'm thirsty, I would love a drink from the wells outside of the gate of Bethlehem, they decide, well, let's go do that then. So they go and they break through the lines and they bring it back. And earlier that quote we read, it says, where are the, those of us who will be like the mighty men of old, who will make our king's longing our mission, no matter what the risk? And it's pointing us back towards these ideas of, you know, maybe it's hard for us to understand behaving in such a way because we are so pragmatic at times. It's like, well, a cup of water is never worth that risk. But for these men, they were mighty warriors. They knew who they were. They knew their role in life. And they knew their king and they loved their king. And when he voiced something, it became their mission. And so they went and they got it and they brought it back. And David pours it out as, a, as a, an offering to the Lord. It's, it, it actually is better than him drinking it because it's him saying, all of us together, let's worship God for his goodness to us in this moment. He's elevating these three alongside of him. And what, it, I, what I want it to remind us of this morning is this idea that when God changes our heart, it gives us his vision for the world. And God's vision for the world must then become our mission in life. That everything has to line up with that. And God's vision for the world is for everyone everywhere to know that he is seeking them and to know that he has a plan for their life. And so the the way that affects you and me is if you're here this morning and, and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, then the first way you make God's vision your mission is by surrendering to him. By just saying, okay, Lord, I, I will, you can, you be my savior, my king, my Lord, I will lay all of this down before you and I'll begin to trust you and I'll begin to serve you. It changes our vision, you know, when we think about people we care about, our friends, our family, our coworkers, classmates who are far from Jesus, it changes our vision from th- for them because we don't see them just as people who are opposed to the gospel or people who hate our way of life, but we're able to see them as Children, sons and daughters of God that he loves and he longs to bring back in his family. And so we'll begin to pray every day, God, help my kids to see you seeking them. Help my husband, my wife, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my cousin, my friends. Help them to see how you are working in their life. And then the last thing it does is it it changes our vision for the world. When we have God's vision for the world, it supersedes all of the dividing lines that we've created. All of the ways that we've tried to create an us versus them approach to life in our world, the gospel demolishes. And the gospel comes to us and it declares everyone everywhere is being sought by God. Whether they're like the sheep and they've just wandered off, they're like the coin and they're lost, or they're like the prodigal son who has willfully and pridefully rejected the goodness of God and thrown themselves into sin. Anyway, wherever they are, they are the sought. And so we're going to talk in a minute about how that kind of is what inspires our faith promise giving. But Before we do that, I think it's important for us to pay attention to a dichotomy that can exist in our heart at times. It's fascinating to me, uh, and, and maybe social media is 
just kind of highlighted this for us over the last couple years. But it's fascinating to me how many Christians I know that participate in things like faith promise giving, that go on missions trips, that believe in God's heart for the world, and yet constantly seem to promote this us versus them mentality. You know, it's like, yes, the gospel is for everyone, everywhere, until they threaten my way of life, and then I will shoot them in the face. Right? And, and so just, um, I mean, I, I wasn't planning on it, but I did it in first service, so I'll just go ahead and do it now, too. God's plan for the world, like we're entering into a presidential election season, and all the ridiculousness that accompanies that. Can we all please, just this morning, let's agree we are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. And all of our political decisions and all of the conversations we engage in and all of the things that we post or repost and all of the emails that we forward, let's run them through that filter first of I am a follower of Jesus. Because here's what that means. Jesus' plan for the world is not to go bomb the hell out of some Muslims. His plan for the world is to seek them and to save them. And our job is to participate in that. And that's it. There's no way around it. I mean, maybe it would be helpful for us as we go into an election season to just spend some time reading through the Gospels and seeing what Jesus said about our enemies and how he responded to his. And maybe we're better to model our life after him than after whatever political figure happens to pop up in the next few months. He's calling us to be part of seeking and saving, not destroying not building up arsenals so that if the world gets really bad, we can make sure me and mine are okay at the expense of my neighbor. He's calling us to see the world with his vision, and and that means an unclouded, undivided vision. I had a conversation with um, one of my boys a couple years ago. I think he was four or five years old at the time. And he... uh, He's our one that just has a lot of questions and a lot of good questions. You know, a lot of questions where it's like, that, you should ask your mom when you get home. Uh, Questions like that, you know. And so we're driving down the road one day, and he says, Dad, is it okay for army guys to shoot people? I was like, okay, so here we go. Just war to a four-year-old. How do we explain this? And so I did the best I could of, of trying to explain, you know, this very nuanced conversation of, well, sometimes there can be evil that's so great that we send our troops over to defend the innocent, to try to restore a, a sense of peace and justice. And, and uh, yes, sometimes, you know, the enemy is shooting and we shoot back and these things happen and people die. And, and that's why we send our soldiers over. And it's very sad anytime anyone on either side of that dies. That's not God's plan. God and uh, just the way only kind of a four-year-old could do it, he kind of stops and he thinks about it. And, and he says, well, what if instead of sending army guys, we just sent people to tell them about Jesus? And it's, you know, it's easy for us as adults to be like, oh, that's cute. But he's four and he doesn't know how the world works. But isn't that ultimately what Jesus came to do was to show us that the world is broken? To show us that we've ruined it? And he wants to create a new heavens and a new earth. And he wants to begin that process even now through us. 
And so when we think about the sought, and and before we even consider how can we support the work of missions around the world, we want to make sure we're doing that from a heart that is completely devoted to God. You know, my, my prayer this morning, yes, we want to receive faith promise commitments to support missionaries around the world. And I don't, I don't want to create a, a false decision here for you, but if the decision is I'm going to give money to support missionaries while remaining bigoted in my heart, just keep your money. Just keep it and work on your heart and let God soften that and solve that. And then, then those gifts will be so much more generous and they'll be so much more freeing and they'll actually be a source of life to you instead of a source of death. And part of our job as Christians is to continually remind ourselves and to remind the world Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, and we are called to participate in the process. And sometimes it might come at great personal expense. Sometimes it might come at us allowing our sons and our daughters and our brothers and our sisters to go and serve as missionaries in dangerous places. But if we really believe the things we're talking about this morning, we'll be okay with that. Historically, at Christian Chapel, this idea of supporting missions is at the core of who we are. It's in our DNA. We were started 42 years ago by a former missionary. And from the very beginning, his dream was that we would be a church that would support missions above and beyond what the average American church does. And so over the the past 42 years, we have been able to do that. We've been able to give generously and sacrificially and joyfully to see God's kingdom advanced around the world. Dean Heidi, one of our members, he helped us put together a little video that kind of highlights faith promise giving and the impact of it. We shared that with you at the Chili Cook-Off last Sunday night. But if you weren't here, I want to share that with you this morning so you can see exactly what those gifts are doing. And then I'll come back and talk to you a little bit about how that process will work. Uh, We show you that this morning not to say, look at how great we are, but, but more to just emphasize this is who we are. Um, This is who we are as a church. This is who we are as individuals. This is who we want to continue to be. People who make significant investments in the community God has placed us in, but also are good stewards of the resources he's given us to make sure that people who've never heard have an opportunity to hear from them. Lauren, if you guys want to come back, the ushers are going to come in just a moment and they're going to receive our faith promises for 2016. So under every Oh, third or fourth chair, there are different faith promise cards. I think there are two different types, but basically on each one, there's a large portion and a small portion. If you, my hope is over this month, you've had time to pray and, and consider how God would have you participate in this with us this year. The way it works for Angie and I is we, um, you know, all the time we're giving at least 10% of our income to the church. We've done that since we were kids, since we were teenagers, had our first jobs and, and kept doing that since we were married. Um, but then in addition to that, what we've also done is every year in January, uh, we take time to pray and discuss how God would allow us to give to missions above and beyond our regular giving. And the way we do that at Christian Chapel is through what we call faith promise giving. The thought here is it's not a contract. It's not a pledge. It's just you saying, as God provides for me, this is what I think he's called me to give. And so different families do that different ways. Sometimes you sit down and, and you work your type A and you work through the budget and you carve out this is the extra amount we're going to give. Uh, some of you are a little more free-spirited and you have the, well, uh, this number sounds good. Let's see if God does it. Either way, I don't care. Pray about it. See what God says. Do what he says. That's our goal with faith promise commitment. Our goal is not a number in terms of a total amount raised. Our goal is 100% participation. 
That's what we're always hoping for. And what we've seen again and again is that as we make these commitments, God provides for us to fulfill them. You know, uh, most churches, when they do this type of stuff, they tell you you can expect 70 to 80% of what was committed to actually come in. At Christian Chapel, we have historically received between 97% and 104, 105% of what was pledged. Um, again, that's because some of you refuse to fill this out, even though you know you're going to do it anyways. I, yeah, I, I know who you are, but keep that between us. Uh, but, you know, the, the other part of that is just, hey, is we believe as we make God's vision our mission, he provides for it. You know, this, we really do believe faith promise giving is one of the best investments you can make with your money because you are giving to participate in what God is already doing. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a, a thing that we get to do um, every year. And so think about that. Pray about it. If you haven't had time to consider it, I don't want you to feel any pressure at all to do this right now. Uh, but feel free to take that home. Pray about it this week and bring it back with you next Sunday. You can email it into the church office. Those emails are on the back of the bulletin if you just want to do it that way. The only reason we ask you to turn these in is it helps our board as we're budgeting our mission support for 2016. So our goal every year is to be able to give a little bit more to missions. And as we know what's coming in, we're able then to make some of those commitments. But faith promise giving, our missionaries tell us, is the most effective way to support them. They, they need consistent monthly support to be able to do what God has called them to do. And this is a way that we can participate in that with them. So thank you for praying about it. Thank you for considering it. As Lauren and the band lead us, I want you to pay attention. There's a few lyrics in this song, that Spirit of the Living God song that we sang earlier. And it talks about how when God shows up in this room or in our lives, that it, it changes what we see. It changes what we seek. It changes everything. And as we sing it, this is a practical expression of that for us. We love to come and worship together. We love to have these great moments. But the goal of all of that is that everything that happens in here leads to change out there. And so part of the, the way we do that is by giving to missionaries to help them, by sharing with our neighbors, our friends, our family, God's plan for their life, just helping them, serving them, seeking God's presence to make a difference for us and to make a difference for everyone everywhere that God is seeking. So thank you for praying with me. Thank you for joining with Angie and I, with our board and staff in giving to support missions this year. Ushers will come and receive those from us. God is speaking to you this morning, either drawing you to himself or, or just really encouraging you to continue your involvement in the lives of those he's, he's seeking. And you'd like someone to talk with, you'd like someone to pray with you about the things that you feel God is doing in your heart this morning. Then as we leave, if you'll head out the back doors and to your left, Pastor Greg and Pastor Rennie, a team of uh, volunteers with them, will be ready just to pray with you, to believe that as you surrender to God, you step into the fullness of life he created you for. And ready to believe with you that those you want to experience Jesus in 2016, God wants it even more and he's pursuing them even more. And so just let, let us join with you in those prayers. But before we leave today, I want to pray for all of us. So God, we come to you today thankful that while we were far from you, you sought us out. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy that was extended to us while we were still sinners. Thank you for sending Jesus to us to reveal your love and to reveal your plan. Thank you for not being content as long as we were outside of your family. 
And Lord, we pray in the coming year that you will continue to give us your vision for our world. Help us to see everyone in our life, those we love and those we hate, through your eyes. May our hearts be continually remade into your image. May we have eyes to see the world as you see it, and may we courageously go in making your vision our mission. We pray especially, Lord, for those that are far from you, that in this year, as you seek them and we join you in that process, that we will see many coming to know life in Christ. Here in our community and all around the world through the many missionaries and others that we're privileged to partner with. God, we surrender to you, to your kingdom, to your plan. We pray every day, Lord, that you would give us a new heart and you would change our vision for the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Again, if you'd like prayer, stop by the prayer room on your way out. Thank you for listening. If content from this podcast was meaningful to you, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at christianchapel.com.